This is episode 139 of the Stem Cell Podcast, In Vitro Models of Schizophrenia, with Dr. Kristen Brennan. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Don't forget to check in with us at www.stemcellpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and find more than a hundred archived episodes. Today, we have Dr. Kristen Brennan from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai on the podcast to talk about her research on developing iPSC-based models to study the predisposition to neuropsychiatric disease. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first, this week, we'd like to remind our listeners about Neural Cell News, one of stem cells free weekly scientific newsletters. Neural Cell News summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in neural cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with Neural Cell News. Subscribe for free at neuralcellnews.com. Now on to the roundup. We're going to start with something very, very important to me. Professionally, I work on the correlate in women, but also, you know, personally, because I've got testes. This is a story about uh, autologous grafting of cryopreserved prepubertal rhesus testis, all right, and uh, live birth from that. So just to set the stage, you know, chemo, okay, chemotherapy, we all know, it's like, you know, scorched earth. Uh, and also radiation. Same idea, these treatments for cancer or other kind of malignancies, they have a gonadotoxic effect in men and women. In uh, men, they can deplete the spermatogonial stem cells in the testis, and this can result in permanent infertility. Now, if you're an adult male, you can find a private room, do your business, and then cryopreserve sperm. And that can later be used to produce your own biological offspring. But uh, sperm freezing is not an option, nor should it be, sinners. For prepubertal boys, because they're not yet producing sperm, and this is obviously an important issue moving forward, because, you know, the good news is the survivor rate of childhood cancer is very high, above 80%. Um, But 30% of childhood cancer survivors are going to be infertile as adults as a result of that chemotherapeutic or radiotherapeutic gonadotoxicity. All right, so Kyle Orwig at University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, they came at this with an approach of trying to cryopreserve the whole testicular tissue. Okay, and, and just, you know, a little background. There have been studies before that have reported a autologous grafting of whole testis tissue in primates. Um, and they've shown that you can kind of recover this spermatogenesis and you, you can, you know, the tissue survives. But, uh, you know, it's not, no one has shown that this sperm or uh, the seminiferous tubules in these, the grafted tissue can produce sperm that's function. Um, so Kyle Org is trying to break through that barrier. Him and his group, they took the prepubertal testicular tissue, uh, cryopreserved it, and then castrated the same mouse about a year later or so. They uh, 
autologously grafted the tissue then back under the in the skin of the back of the of the monkey or in the skin of the scrotum and uh the grafts matured, and they produced functional sperm that was competent to fertilize rhesus monkey oocytes, leading to embryo development, pregnancy, and the birth of a healthy female baby. So this is, a, I think, a breakthrough for a lot of uh, young men who may have already cryopreserved their testicular tissue in advance of chemotherapy and or maybe beat it the cancer, I mean, and now are coming back to the clinic saying, what can I do with that tissue? Well, Kyla Orwig has proven in principle, at least, that this tissue can function and make live-born offspring. So a lot of young men, you know, happy to survive cancer now can be happy again to start a family. Let's hope uh, not far from the clinic that they've been doing it in women for a long time now, over 10 years, the same idea. But with men, it has eluded us, but not for long. Moving on into the heart. Okay, so, you know, this is about the heart and, and stem cells, but it's really about the whole paradigm of ph pharmacology and the traditional way of doing things and how we're, we're putting that down in favor of a new paradigm. Um, this stems from the fact that you know, 90%, 90%, 9 of 10 drug candidates fail to progress from phase one to clinical approval. And these are all targets that are identified using like cell culture or small animal models, but they don't translate because the effect that you note in the small animal or in cell culture just doesn't pan out in the humans. Lack of efficacy. This is a really relevant and pertinent to the cardiovascular field because there's far fewer drugs in clinical development in the cardiovascular space relative to cancer, for example, or other fields of research. And that's despite the fact that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the world. All right, so Enzo Pirello out of Queensland in Australia, they're trying to tackle, you know, trying to f mesh tradi traditional pharmaceutical approaches with this new platform that is uh, pluripotent stem cell science and the tools we can use. And his group there, they previously, they had made a, a, a high-throughput, bioengineered human cardiac organoid platform. And these organoids, they, can, they have functional contractile tissue that has properties that are very similar to native tissue. So in this study, they use those cardiac organoids um, to screen 105 small molecules to see if any of them had pro-regenerative potential. And they found two that had pro-proliferative effect without the detrimental uh, impact on cardiac function that you worry about. A lot of these drugs, you know, they have an effect on what you want, but some off-target thing makes them a problem. So they found two candidates that were all upside, seemingly, and through proteomics, they, proteomics, they re, uh, showed that there's a synergistic activation of the mevalonate pathway and uh, cell cycle control, the cell cycle control network that was exerted by these pro-proliferative com uh, compounds. So it's some good candidates that we might want to get into trial, you know, patients who have uh, cardiovascular disease or, or heart failure, you know, downstream of infarction. 
you might want to put these two novel compounds into trial, see what happens. Uh, but more, more than that, I think this the approach, it um, really underscores the value of the organoid and the pluripotent stem cell-derived organoid for drug development. Um, you know, instead of using the cells themselves for regenerative effects, you know, you can use the cells to try and identify compounds that are pro-regenerative and maybe understand the mechanisms that underlie heart repair. So that's that. You know, we've come from the testis into the heart, and now we're going to do a, a, a little jag and neural stories in honor of our guest, and because everything is always neural. You open a journal and something neural there, guaranteed, as it should be. Neural, that's where the brain is. This is a story about where the brain comes from, all right? This is a from Guo Liming and Hongjun Song Labs uh, at UPenn. And the, the basic question is, do the adult proliferative neurons come from the same place as the embryonic proliferative neurons? Do the adult seats of neurogenesis find their origins in embryogenesis? So that's the question, you know, because new neurons, they're continuously generated in the adult brain. There's two spots, the subventricular zone and the subgranular zone. Um, the subventricular zone in the lateral ventricle wall, the subgranular zone in the dentate gyrus. Okay? And there's one fundamental question, as I alluded to, is whether adult neurogenesis represents a unique de novo biological phenomenon that's kind of put apart and has distinctive features and functions, or if it's just a, like an extension of the embryonic developmental processes that set up the brain. All right, so to address this question, um, the Ming and Song Labs, they went into the mouse, and, and what they found is that there's, there's actually these, this specific precursor, HOPX positive precursor, that's in the mouse dentate neuroepithelium at embryonic day 11, all right? That HOPX positive precursor gives rise to a HOPX positive neural progenitor um, in the primitive dentate region, and those cells in turn generate granule neurons, but no other neurons, just granule neurons throughout development, but then transition into a still HOPX positive quiescent neural progenitor, okay? And that quiescent neural progenitor is the one that resides in the gentrate gyrus in the subgranular zone. Um, and this, you know, proliferative cell finds its origins in embryogenesis. Okay, so it's, it supports this continuous model where there's a common neural progenitor population that contributes to neurogenesis both in development and throughout adulthood. And the real key takeaway here, I think, is that the, the accumulating evidence has supported a role for these SGZ, these subgranular zone neurons, that they have a, a major function in, in neuronal plasticity, in learning, and in memory, in mood regulation, and dysregulation of these neurons is implicated in various brain disorders, you know? So... This could be a, a niche, a cell that uh, 
has a, a lot to do with our ability to continue to learn and deficits in that process and understanding where those cells come from in development and how they transition to their adult niche and phenotype. It's a very important question that's now been answered. Thank you very much, Doctors Ming and Song. Staying in the brain, you know, I just told you that it's generally why the consensus, the new neurons are being uh, made in the brain throughout adulthood. But, you know, there's, there's not, I wouldn't say complete consensus. All right, this occurrence of this adult hippocampal, hippocampal neurogenesis, it was shown about two decades ago with these now famous seminal Karolinska studies. But the, this, the limited availability of adequately preserved human brain tissue samples, as well as all the different types of ways that it's processed you know, by different people, it's considered to a bit of a lack of consensus. There's a little bit of, I wouldn't say controversy, but the degree to which adult neurons continue to be made in the brain, it's, it's, it's uh, I guess, variable in terms of what, what people uh, have measured. But uh, Maria Lorenz Martin in uh, Madrid, they pretty much just went to the, the most state-of-the-art approach with very stringent methodological conditions. Okay, they, they obtained human brain samples under these tightly controlled conditions with state-of-the-art processing um, from uh, 13 neurologically healthy subjects that were between 43 and 87 years of age. And what they found is that there were immature neurons that were continuously made um, in the dentate gyrus. But I think what was really interesting about this, you know, thousands, by the way, thousands of immature neurons at various stages of, of maturation. But uh, what was really notable, what made this a nature medicine uh, story, was that in, in very sharp contrast... Um, in patients that were affected by Alzheimer's disease, the number and maturation of the neurons progressively declined. Um, so this is a pretty basic study, descriptive, looking at proliferation of neurons in the brain and their maturation state, but it was done at such a level of technical mastery and under such stringent conditions that I think that it'll, it'll go a long way to ironing out the consensus and leading to you know, widespread, I think, agreement that there's the persistence of this adult hippocampal neurogenesis, both during normal physiological aging, but also in, in the pathological conditions. Um, and it also could draw, a, and I think it does, it, it, it uh, makes the link between the impaired neurogenesis in Alzheimer's disease patients um, and raise the question of whether this is the, the mechanism that underlies the memory deficits in these patients. So also providing a target for how you can maybe mitigate the loss or reinforce the recovery of the cell population to some therapeutic effect. And last but not least, because we're coming into our interview with Dr. Brennan, whose specialty is schizophrenia, we're going to go a little bit off piece. This isn't exactly a stem cell story, but it's in cell and it's, uh, you know, relevant. Schizophrenia. Kristen Brennan studies schizophrenia. This is out of Alex Shire's lab at Harvard. Um, and, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit deeper in the interview, but uh, just to, you know, 
you probably already know, but neuropsychiatric, neuropsychiatric disorders, they're very heritable diseases. Um, I'm going to talk about it with Kristen in a minute, but like schizophrenia, uh, 80 to 90% I saw reported uh, heritable. I don't know what that means. I don't think it means like it's 90% you're going to get it. Maybe it does. We'll have to ask Kristen. But the idea that it's heritable makes it clear that there's an underlying genetic predisposition. But defining the, what that means, of what genes are linked to disease, progress has, has been limited on that front. Partly because there's so many loci uh, in with these GWAS studies that are associated with these disorders. And these loci contain hundreds of candidate genes. So... You know, just very briefly, you can look at this story. It's a cell resource. So Dr. Shire's group went Rambo with the CRISPR and targeted the zebrafish orthologs of 132 human schizophrenia-associated genes and then created a, a phenotypic atlas of those mutants looking at the whole brain activity map, uh, structural differences in the brain, and profiles of behavioral abnormalities, Okay schizophrenic zebrafish shaking around in the tank, I guess. Uh, and exploration these days has identified a lot of promising candidates. Uh, in particular, single-cell seek uncovered an essential role for this understudied transcription factor ZNF536 in, in the development of forebrain neurons that are implicated in social behavior and stress. So I know we're talking about a vertebrate here, not even in the mammal anymore, but... Uh, Nevertheless, I think, you know, fish have neurons. Fish probably presumably have feelings and thoughts in their little forebrains. And uh, I think that as a model goes, it's very accessible. It's amenable to this high-throughput approach where you can blast 132 human orthologs and get some insights. And this has led to them prioritizing 30 out of those 132, 30 candidates for further study that might bridge the gap between the genetic association studies and the biological mechanisms that we really need to understand in order to address the disease. So there you go, Dr. Shire going big with that cell resource. Very impressive work. And uh, that's that. We're on to the interview. And, you know, like I told you before today on the show, we have uh, Dr. Kristen Brennan, who's from the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai on the podcast. She's going to talk about her research on developing iPSC-based models to study predisposition to neuropsychiatric disease. And we're going to go deep on that. But if you want to learn even more about her research and see some of the data for yourself, you ought to check out her webinar with Stem Cell Technologies, where she discusses functional validation of both rare and common genetic variants that are linked to schizophrenia, you can find that at www.stemcell.com slash webinar. That's stemcell.com slash B-R-E-N-N-A-N-D webinar. And uh, you'll learn a lot more about the stuff that she's about to talk about. Kristen is associate professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, departments of genetics and genomics, also neuroscience and psychiatry. Wow, a lot of departments. She's also a uh, Robertson investigator, one of the pioneer Robertson investigators for the New York Stem Cell Foundation, so big up to you. She's a stem cell biologist working to bridge the fields of developmental neuroscience and psychiatry. A major focus of the work 
is developing in vitro models for schizophrenia in order to identify novel insights into the molecular and cellular phenotypes of mental illness generally, but schizophrenia specifically. Her lab has established a new mechanism using iPS cell-based models to systematically test the impact of causal variants in human cells. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you know, we had to have you on because you're doing so much good stuff. Why don't you start by giving us a little bit of an overview of uh, the research focus in your lab? Yeah, well, when I when I started this work as a postdoc, I, I think I I went into it with this naive idea that the whole goal was to get stem cells from as many patients as possible, stem cells from as many controls as possible, turn them both into neurons, compare the neurons, figure out how the neurons of the patients were different, and then find a way to make them the same again. And it turned out, um, probably unsurprisingly, that uh, it wasn't quite as simple as I had envisioned. Um, schizophrenia, specifically uh, psychiatric disease in general, is really heterogeneous. Our, pa- our cohorts were really underpowered. And, and so the role that we're working in now is much more of one where we are integrating CRISPR-based isogenic approaches to look at the effect of one or more variants in defined uh, genetic backgrounds, trying to understand how the growing number of uh, genetic variants linked to psychiatric disease impact disease risk. And so I think what we're really hoping to do is find better ways to diagnose patients and ultimately match them to treatments. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, schizophrenia, I guess, the major focus of this show and this discussion is going to be schizophrenia. Let's just step back. It's pretty prevalent as far as mental disorders are concerned, 1% prevalence. And I think what's notable and and makes it really appropriate for IPS type study and disease modeling is that it's it's uh, said, I'm, you know, I may be wrong in my stats, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 80 to 85% of yeah, uh, schizophrenia so is heritable. The- so. And the more recent studies keep bumping that estimate upwards, and yeah, the estimates are as much as 80% is, is heritable. You are, are born with a, a huge amount of the, the risk that you're going to carry for this disease. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, this is perfect, I guess, you would think, for, for a disease modeling type approach, but I always thought it was like a neurodevelopmental thing where the architecture in the brain could go wrong, but clearly there's a, a, a cellular basis for the disease risk. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this is this is um, something that I think the more we learn, the more we realize how very complicated it is. And and so we, we now understand there are both rare variants and common variants that underlie risk. Uh, the rare variants tend to be unique to patients. Uh, you generally don't get to have one of them and be a, a control. But the common variants all of us carry, the patients just either seem to carry more of them or they interact in a way that just puts it over the top. And so what we're talking about really is an additive risk model where all of us have some risk and the patients just have more or more focused risk. And and yes, it's true that uh, you're born with a large amount of risk, but the way that presents clinically, whether that's schizophrenia or autism or bipolar, um, that's still really uncertain and, and hard to discern how, which symptoms uh, a patient's going to have. And, and some of it's the specific uh, 
genes that are impacted by the variants, the severity of the variants, and yes, there is definitely some environmental factors that can swing it, and cannabis is actually a great example of a known environmental factor that can modulate schizophrenia. It's been really complicated and confusing for a long time whether it was cannabis use uh, that caused schizophrenia or whether patients were self-medicating some of their early symptoms um, with cannabis. And, and the answer, as always, because people are complicated, might be both. Um, but there's, I think, a growing consensus that uh, cannabis does perhaps lead to earlier onset or more severe schizophrenia, but that it's not converting people from controls into patients. Hmm. But the honest truth is this is, as you said, a neurodevelopmental disorder, and the earlier you look for symptoms, the earlier you find them. And so psychosis, the defining symptom of schizophrenia, tends to show up in late adolescence, uh, 18 or so for men, and as late as 24 to the late 20s for, for women. Um, but you can see cognitive and motor and social deficits as early as doctors look, as early as two or three years, they're finding uh, behavioral uh, phenotypes suggestive of high risk uh, of individuals. Wow. And so, I mean, if, you're, if you can see the early indications of it, uh, well, two questions. What is the, the general treatment um, for the, the psychosis once it really manifests? Um, and is there an idea of kind of getting a, a lead on on these patients where you can you can diagnose the early indications? Is there any kind of uh, intervention there? These are really great questions. Um, so again, schizophrenia, we think of it, I think, in general as being about psychosis, but there's three classes of symptoms that patients have. The first are positive symptoms. Those are the things that patients have that we don't. So that are the classical hallucinations and delusions. But you also have negative things, patient, things patients don't have that we do, and that tends to be things like motivation and, and affect, some of the feelings that, that we have as controls. And, and finally, you have cognitive deficits in a number of patients. And so the medications that we have, they do okay for some patients in the positive symptoms, but they don't help really any of the patients in the negative and the cognitive symptoms. And those tend to be the ones the patients say that to a large extent impact their life the most. And so um, every FDA approved antipsychotic uh, targets the dopamine receptor. Uh, and so we know that that pathway seems to be involved in psychosis, but we don't know that that's the cell type that goes wrong first in disease or that's the cell type that we should best be targeting to ameliorate the greatest number of symptoms and the greatest number of patients. And so that's part of the problem. And, and you're right about earlier treatment. I think that it's really hard to give antipsychotics to kids, not because it's hard to give them pills, but because these are actually awful meds to be on. They have really terrible side effects for the vast majority of the patients. And so yes, kids are prescribed them in exceptional circumstances, to treat early onset psychosis and uh, and really you know bad symptoms, but I don't think anybody thinks these drugs prevent schizophrenia. You're just treating the worst symptoms when they show up early. And, and to be honest, today we don't have a handle on how to prevent schizophrenia. 
Um, we know that psychosis is hard on the brain, and so it is good to prevent psychotic events, but that's not the same as preventing schizophrenia. Yeah, and, and in terms, like, I'm not trying to equate these at all, but, you know, the brain is the brain, and you look at other neurodevelopmental diseases like autism where we've come a long way with kind of behavioral intervention, but that type of thing won't apply for these early schizophrenia indications, I presume. I, I've heard that cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful for some patients. I, I don't know how well that applies. I mean, I think the genetic risk factors for both autism and schizophrenia are shared to some extent, and they do overlap. I think that the behavioral therapies might be modulating some of the heterogeneity within these very diverse diseases. And um, I don't know if all autism patients are benefiting from these interventions or a subset. And so I don't know if all schizophrenia patients or a subset are benefiting. Uh, and, and I think that's definitely something to explore because when you give people skills to cope uh, with their environment, I think they tend to handle it better. Mm. But but yeah, in general, we we do lack pharmacological and behavioral interventions to help limit or prevent the onset of psychosis. Okay, well, that's a good segue to your contribution here. And I mean, I think people may underestimate what a uh, tremendous leap of faith it was for you when you were in Rusty Gage's lab however many years ago. This was, I would say, because I was, you know, I was aware of the paper when it came out. And I and most people around me were very surprised because I think the stem cell scientists that I spoke to had this idea that, that, that psychiatric or neurodevelopmental diseases would be very difficult to model and deconstruct down to like a cell based system. Um, so we were very impressed uh, uh, with the, your seminal nature paper there. Can you, I mean, tell us one, like, where did you find the, the conviction? <laughs> how did you, how did you, what was the, the, the leap of faith? It took a great deal of, I'd say, conviction and, and resolve. Can you tell us about how that story came about? I think, uh, when you look back, sometimes you make good decisions for all of the wrong reasons. Um, I remember being in graduate school. I was in Doug Mountain's lab. Uh, and Doug at the time was trying to make diabetic uh, embryonic stem cell lines. And of course, this was before there was reprogramming. So it was all based on SCNT. He was uh, recruiting women to donate their eggs so they could do SCNT of diabetic skin cell nuclei into these eggs. and. And this turned out to be much harder than anybody anticipated, as somatic cell nuclear transfer is not a great way to make donor-specific stem cell lines. And, and I remember when Shinya Yamanaka first presented reprogramming at a Keystone, I think I had about six months left in grad school at the time, and like that was it. I knew that's what I wanted to spend my career on. And so as I was looking for postdoc opportunities, I knew I wanted to use reprogramming. I thought it was the the coolest tool, the way to study complex diseases. Um, but I also felt like while I was switching labs right now, I was going to be way behind. And so I made a couple of decisions for, in hindsight, pretty arbitrary reasons. I decided I wanted to leave diabetes because I wanted to get on the right side of neural default. And that stem cells at the time were not making beta cells very well. Now, of course, they're making very functional beta cells and our, our neurons are arguably still pretty immature. 
and I didn't want to do a neurodegenerative disease because I figured any idiot stem cell scientist could pick a dead neuro out of a dish. And so I thought I would go to a real neuroscience lab and learn something about neurons and, and pick a disease not defined by cell death. So now I've picked a brain disease not defined by cell death. And on, I just, I remember spending the last few months at grad school looking for the most heritable disease of the brain not defined by cell death. And you end up with autism, schizophrenia, and bipolar. And so when I came to Rusty's lab, I actually uh, began the work to set up cohorts for all three of these. Um, and there was nothing special about schizophrenia. It was just the one that I had positive data on first. <laughs> and, and that is uh, how I got there. And of course, as it turns out, we have not already cured Alzheimer's. We have not already cured Parkinson's. Um, they might have been better choices to have picked up, but uh, that's that's not what you know as a grad student. You, you just follow what you think is um, the best choice at the time. <laughs> well, it certainly led to a, a very rich career in schizophrenia and mental uh, disorders. Let's just go through the hit list, shall we? So. I mean, there's a couple of your studies, I think, that are really using the tool that you created following that Nature paper to try and dissect mechanism of disease. You had this uh, cell reports paper, uh, microRNAs, and more recently, I think you're, you're looking at this uh, the 3D genome, which I think is a really innovative idea in the accessibility of the genome in schizophrenic versus uh, controlled patients. Can you tell us about that most recent study, actually, first? So yeah, that one was, um, again, I, I've got to credit that one entirely to the wisdom of a really great grad student, uh, Prashant Rajaran, who um, decided to put himself between two labs. He rotated with Shram Akbarian and myself and, and couldn't decide and asked if he could do a project with both of us. And I've been looking for a way to collaborate with Shram for a while, and this just turned out to be the coolest project ever, thanks to this student. So. Uh, Sharam had tons of experience with epigenetics uh, and, and the 3D genome and uh, wanted to develop this high c method. And so Prashan took cells from my lab, developed the method in Sharam's lab, found the loops and came back and, and used CRISPR to validate them. And so it was really just this grad student who assembled this great team to help him analyze the data, interpret the data, and then validate the findings. And and, and Prashan drove all of this. It was super fun. And as a result of his work and his successes, we've now got two more grad students shared between our labs. We call them our double agents. Hmm. And they're just helping take all of the epigenetic expertise in Sharam's lab and, and test it in, in live human cells and mine. So, yeah, I mean, this is the culmination, I guess, of, of your approach, which you've kind of used iteratively towards many ends. And I think fundamentally one of the important things that you've done uh, is shown that these the cells that you generate in the dish are, are a real match for post-mortem uh, neuroprogenitors and neurons in schizophrenia-affected patients. Can you tell, like, what, what's the, what is that, what does that mean? Well, let me they're the same, stop they're you similar. for a second, because okay. a real match is a really generous way of describing these cells. <laughs> um, I think they are sort of like the cells in the brain a little bit. <laughs> um, they, they do more resemble the fetal uh, neural cells than adult postmortem cells, but they capture some of the elements. And I think it's, when you're using a model, it's really important to know how good your model is and when it stops being good 
And I think a lot of what my lab has done is try to drill down on exactly where our model falls apart and 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 where we can trust it to and how how reliable it is. And it's it's sort of reliable. Um, it can be useful. There are times, but I tell everybody in the lab, if you can answer your question in the mouse where there is a brain and there is behavior, you absolutely should. And so we're really careful to only ask the questions in the lab that I cannot be convinced are better or more easily answered in, in mouse. And so the tool looks really good in the context of we're only asking questions that I think are, are best addressed here, are only addressed here. And, and uh, so it, it, it's misleading to say these are exactly like brain cells, but I think they are a useful tool to query some of the the facets of brain cells when you have no other alternative. So, okay, let's address that in, in parts. First, the, the, the mouse. So is there a model for schizophrenia in the mouse? I'm, I'm aware of that there, there, some may exist, and you can elaborate on, on the details there. But regardless of whether what behavioral aspects of the disease they can recapitulate, can anyone really argue that you know, uh, uh, schizophrenia in a mouse is going to be an adequate model for addressing a disease in humans? So there's two problems with, with, with that, yeah. And so the first is that how do you know if a mouse is psychotic? <laughs> um, and, it, and that is a, a really difficult thing to say. Some would even argue that psychosis is a perhaps a uniquely human trait. I, I don't know to what extent that is true, but all of the models that claim to be schizophrenia models tend to really be models of anxious behavior combined with cognitive deficits. And and to my knowledge, no one's really convincingly shown a positive symptom in these mice. Um, the, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, historically, we're probably modeling the wrong genes in the mice. A lot of the mouse models to date are still DISC-1 and Irregulin-1 uh, deletions. And and neither of those genes have come up in the, the largest PGC genetic studies. Um, why are those the genes that are being modeled? Well, it's historical. They were found first. And second, all of the really best candidate genes now, or many of them, are just difficult ones to model in mice. A lot of our CNVs that we're finding, the rare variants, they're really big. They're really hard to engineer. 22Q11, for example, has been so hard we can't even engineer it in IPS let alone in a mouse model. Um, norexin one's a second major CNV, but it's non-recurrent, so it's different in every patient. So how do you model a mutation that's different in every patient in a mouse? Uh, and the common variants tend to be in non-coding regions that aren't consistently conserved in mice. Mm. And so I think the genetics of schizophrenia are just poor candidates for mouse models, and, and that's one of the major limitations of it, to, while the clinical biology is hard to capture in mouse, so is the genetics. And so the mouse model is just, it's not as easy to pursue some of the, the good questions there. Right. And now I guess you alluded to the shortcomings of the human system, although I think you were being very conservative. <laughs> I mean, don't worry. No one's, no one's going to hold you to saying it's an exact match, but it's pretty close. What are the, the shortcomings, though? I mean, I think you alluded to the fact that they're more fetal. Um, what else is, is, I think, lacking in the human system? So some of 
the shortcomings are also the strengths. So it's hard to reproduce things between experiments. But uh, part of the reason that it's hard to reproduce things is that different labs are doing it in different people. So some of the shortcomings are also the strengths. Uh, the issue here is that it, it is hard to reproduce findings between experiments. And there's a couple of reasons here to do it. The first is a uh, we call it the intra-individual variation. So this is when you do the exact same thing on the exact same cell line, and you, you don't necessarily get the same yield of neurons or astrocytes. And, and this just reflects the quality of the protocols. And that's something that we're technically getting better at year over year. But the larger issue is actually inter-individual variation. So this is when you do something on two different genetic backgrounds and you get two different results. And I think this is actually the whole point of using iPS cells is we are all genetically diverse and the same genetic variation might have a very different effect in, in two different people. Some of us can carry it and be a control and some of us will carry a variant and be a patient. And, and because mouse work tends to be connected, uh, conducted on the same inbred strain, we don't get to understand how genetic variants interact with background. And so I think this is the greatest weakness and the greatest strength, that we can really query how single genetic variants and the interactions between many genetic variants impact both disease course and treatment response. Yeah, but you talk about that like it's not a huge amount of work. This other paper you had in Nature Communication, this transcriptomic drug screening, I think drives home how complex that is. You had 12 affected, 12 control and you generated lines from all those, and then each of those you had to check on some panel of drugs. So it ends up being like 4,000 different data points that you have to somehow integrate into some coherent result. Uh, I mean, one, tell us, like, that's a major challenge. Uh, another, like, kind of the ch along those lines, what are the challenges of doing these on the outbred, so to speak, human background? Um, and w what is that, that goal there, like with that transcriptomic, transcriptomic drug screening? What, what's the idea there? Well, I mean, the, the basic idea is that all of the patients or many of the patients and many of us are unique. And every current FDA-approved drug for schizophrenia was identified by a screen in like the same cancer cell line looking for something that bound a dopamine receptor antagonist. And these drugs only work for a third of patients. Many clinical trials recently in brain disease, in neurodegeneration and psych, have failed recently. And, and it, it could be that because these drugs don't work in every patient, but much more likely is these drugs maybe did work in a small subset of patients. Uh, and your drug fails trials if that's the case, because on average your drug failed, even if it was life-changing for one or two or five percent of your patients. And so what we as a field need to do is to better bin patients. We have to understand and be able to predict who's going to have what outcome and who's going to respond to what drug. I, I don't think it's realistic to expect that we're going to have one drug that makes every patient better. We really understand in cancer that this is not the case, and cancer has really rapidly been moving towards a more personalized approach. And whenever you can do better than just giving a patient chemo, they seem to do a lot better. And I, I think that psychiatry is really playing catch up here. Um, 
And, and so that's why it's important to test things across genetic backgrounds, because we don't expect them to necessarily be the same across genetic backgrounds. That's why we wanted to try the screen across so many different donors to understand how often drugs are different between donors and and what types of things are different when drugs are different between donors. We really have to begin to ask questions in this space to move to more translational research. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the, the major um, takeaways for me from that study was just technically speaking, the idea that, that you could monitor kind of the efficacy of the drug to see if it could reverse the transcriptional, the transcriptome in the affected cells and kind of revert it, rescue it, so to speak, to, uh, uh, to look more like the controls. Uh, it occurs to me that the, the, in light of what you said earlier, that there's people at risk and some of the, the, the you can observe some some differences in patients very, very early in childhood. Does it, I mean, one, is, is the transcriptome, do you think it would provide a, a useful or accurate diagnostic measure to see or to, to measure the degree of risk in young patients? Um, and also another thing is, could you, could you use that in kind of reverse? Like we were talking about drugs um, and cannabis specifically, has anyone kind of taken a normal transcriptomic signature or maybe an at-risk and shown that if you add whatever to it that you can then push or induce a kind of uh, schizophrenic-type phenotype transcriptome? So, so I think you're talking about like an, an IPS neuron transcriptome because you, of course, can't just take a lot of samples from the brains of at Right, no, of course, taking IPS to neurons and then seeing if, they, if the genetic risk carries through into the dish. So this is like exactly the question that like is the major assumption of all of stem cell biology. You know, you've got to keep in mind that if I take a skin sample from a person when they're two years old or 20 years old or 80 year old, the assumption is that it's the same IPS line since you're wiping age when you reprogram. It shouldn't matter if I make a stem cell line from somebody before or after the onset with psychosis because the assumption is that there's no epigenetic memory in the skin of that individual of what it was like with or without psychosis. And so it shouldn't matter if we grab a high-risk kid who ends up with schizophrenia when they're two or when they're 20. I think that it's possible that the stem cell signatures could capture it, but the genesis are actually doing really good at imputing brain gene expression signatures now just from DNA alone. And so that's called TWAS. And there's folks at Sinai, Laura Hawkins, there's there's folks in a few different sites doing this, where if you well understand, uh, they call them EQTLs. These are, if you know which sites in the DNA regulate expression of nearby genes, and you know the genotype at all of those sites, then in aggregate, you can predict patterns of gene expression in different cell types in the brain and throughout the body. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the major hopes is that from the genotype, of at-risk kids, you'll be able to predict um, if they'll end up with disease or not, and open this window of therapeutic intervention a lot wider. It's, I think it's really obvious to all of us that we should be treating Alzheimer's before the neurons are dead and Parkinson's before the neurons are dead, but wouldn't it be great if we were treating schizophrenia or autism symptoms 
before you've reinforced this aberrant circuit function for 20 years. Mm. Um, and so I think that's that's exactly the goal. And I don't know if we're talking about diagnosing in 15-year-olds or diagnosing in 2-year-olds or, you know, ultimately preventing the disease in fetuses. Like, I, I don't know where you would need to intervene to prevent these symptoms. We know the risk factors for these for schizophrenia and for autism actually seem to be genes that are expressed during cortical development in utero. And so it, it might be that genetic risk is set before birth and that the ultimate time to intervene with with a drug might be in utero. And this, this can sound really outlandish, but I always like to use the example of neural tube defects to kind of to counter that. Um, it's really, really, really bad to be born with a brain or spinal tube that didn't close. There's no pill to treat this after birth. If you're lucky, there's a really good surgeon. But the rates of neural tube defects in the U.S. and in Western countries has fallen dramatically over the last 30 years. And that's because since 1992, we've recommended to all pregnant women that they take folic acid. This proved so effective and so safe that now every single day, every single one of us, man, woman, and child, is supplemented with folic acid every piece of bread or every muffin that we eat just to make sure we don't miss any pregnant woman. And so if something as serious and, and bad as a, a neural tube defect can be prevented with something as simple as a vitamin, um, my hope is that we'll find similar interventions that might be safe enough and, and uh, effective enough to treat either adolescents or kids or, or fetuses well before the onset of these symptoms. Hmm. Yeah, and as you're talking here, I think it becomes clear, although most of this conversation has been about the, the cells in the dish. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about brains um, and possibly brains in development uh, when the intervention should be made or maybe when the disease is, is uh, building or reinforcing the circuit, as you said. So, I mean, there's clear benefit here to your approach of having reduced it and deconstructed it to this in vitro cell system. But would there be an even greater benefit if you could scale up to the organoid? You know, everyone's crazy about the organoids now. Are you exploring the idea of trying to examine this process in the context of this 3D organoid? And do you think that there would be additional insight that you could glean um, that maybe doesn't present in the 2D so I think all it's always better to have more models and more people exploring this. Um, I think when you want to look at actual circuits and actual connections between neurons of different cell types, yeah, the organoids can be great because they are arguably much more physiologically relevant. I, I think um, we're going to need all strategies going after it. Uh, at the moment, my lab's really just focused on trying to understand how to translate genetic risk into RNA and neural function. But yeah, the next steps are going to have to be pushing towards more context, adding more cell types, more you know, glumatergic input on GABAergic neurons, dopaminergic present in astrocytes with microglia there doing the pruning. We have to move these models towards increasing complexity. That's, that's the way forward. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, speaking of the way forward, I was just going to ask, what is the path forward for the patient-specific and or pluripotent cells in the kind of mental health space 
Is it all diagnostics and modeling, drug screening, or is there, you know, the original thing with stem cells was regenerative. Is there a place for cell-based regenerative or cell-based interventions to address schizophrenia or other, you know, mental health disorders? Yeah, okay, so th this is a really big question with, with a lot of parts. And so I think there are a lot of ways that we can benefit patients. And, and the first one is diagnosis. So the state of the art in psychiatry today is actually pretty awful. And I like to spin it on its head and say, can you imagine going to your doctor's office and presenting with pain in your stomach? And the doctor spent an hour talking with you about how you felt about that pain in your stomach, how that pain in the stomach was impacting your ability to do your job, how it was impacting your relationships, what, whether it made you feel sad or depressed or anxious. And at the end of that hour, without doing a blood draw, without doing a biopsy, without doing a scan, the doctor diagnosed you with stage three stomach cancer, gave you a pill, told you he figured it had about a third of it, a one third chance of working, and asked you to come back in six weeks so you could talk about your feelings about your stomach pain then. Um, <laughs> it sounds absurd when you, when you put it like that, but this is psychiatry. We don't have biomarkers, we don't have brain imaging, we don't have blood tests. I think the ability to do a genetic diagnosis, even for an 18-year-old, to clarify uh, what their diagnosis is, if it's schizophrenia, if it's drug-induced psychosis, if it's something else, I think that would be hugely impactful. Of course, ultimately, you want to be able to link your DNA test to a treatment. And so that's the next step. First is to help diagnose better. Second is to help pair treatments to the right individuals. And, and that works two ways. It's either finding the drugs that will work best for that patient, which is great, but it's also ruling out drugs that won't work for a patient. Because let's be honest, in psychiatry, you have a lot of terrible side effects. And so simply sparing a patient going on a drug that's not going to work for them, and that was going to cause them to gain 30 pounds in four weeks, that's a meaningful help too. And so I think that yeah, my goal is to help with diagnosis and ultimately move, if not towards personalized medicine, at least towards precision medicine, where if the geneticist can bin the patients, we can do a hundred or a thousand drug screens on all the different bins that they find. As for your question about cell replacement therapy, I think it really depends on the brain disease that you're talking about. It makes a lot of sense when neurons are disappearing to put them in for Alzheimer's or for Parkinson's I think it's harder to imagine for psychiatry because it's not defined by the loss of a single cell type, which cell you would put in and how you would get it to wire. I'm not going to rule it out um, because we know there are many cell types interacting in psychiatric disease, but I think it'll be longer before people make a headway, if they make a headway at all on, on, these, on these disorders. You mean using cells? I think it's, it's really hard to imagine how to get a neuron wired into the right spot if mm. you're talking about a glutamatergic neuron. It's, um, maybe I'm wrong, I, I don't know, but I, I, I suspect some of the first treatments to come out of stem cell models will be pills, uh, <laughs> yeah. not cell replacement therapies. Yeah, well, I, I, I would agree. Um, but then again, 
I thought you'd never be able to model schizophrenia in a dish. And look, I've look, been wrong before. Look, look so. that <laughs> um, well, that's a good summary, though, I think, of, of the moving forward. I think that uh, it's, it's, I'm optimistic. I mean, it seems like the, the, the greatest impact uh, will be just because we've only scratched the surface up to this point. And so I think that there's a lot of uh, gains to be made. Um, just to end the interview, we like to go on a more personal scientific bend. So we're going to ask you a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, that are only peripherally related to science. The first one is, uh, tell us a, a non-science text that you are reading or have read recently that is really awesome. So, so I've got a, a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, which has seriously limited uh, my ability to read for fun. Um, but one of the books that we're reading a lot at home right now, uh, besides going on a bear hunt, is At a Twist Scientist, which I think is a really great kid's book. Because any book for toddlers with the word hypothesis in it, um, <laughs> it, it is a really fun book to read. It rhymes well, and it, it's got a great little girl role model who is doing experiments throughout the whole book. Yeah, I I I have the same book. I've <laughs> I've given it to every because uh, I you know I being a scientist and the only scientist in my group of friends. Every time a friend of mine has a girl, I, I give him the add a twist. Um, it's like the anthem for women in science. Getting an <laughs> early start. Uh, Adam Marie. Adam Marie. <laughs> <laughs> that's good stuff. Uh, second, we're gonna go with a little bit of fill in the blanks here. First one is, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? CRISPR. Totally CRISPR. Yeah. I, again, I was guilty of not seeing how much this was going to change the field. It's not just about gene editing. It's not even about manipulation of gene expression, epigenetic marks. It's going to be about genome-wide screening for understanding all of the genes that are responsible for basically any cellular phenotype or transcriptional profile you might might be at a query. Wow. That's a big claim. I think you're right, though, because especially it's probably really relevant to you because this has been the challenge, right, with schizophrenia or mental health disorders is this wide constellation of genes that could account for it and the inaccessibility in a mouse system. So being able to do this broad... I can't stress how excited I am about this. People have been doing genome-wide CRISPR screens and cancer cell lines for a couple of years, and I always thought the problem in neuro was that the, the neurons are post-metodic, and so if the assays require you know, growing or glowing, mm. the growing didn't work, and I couldn't find a good assay that glowed when neurons fired. Um, Mary Swernay actually had a really great paper a couple months ago that made me feel really dumb, though, and so <laughs> what he did is he used CRISPR activation to screen for genes that were sufficient to turn iPS cells into neurons. Mm. I was in cell stem cell two or three months ago, and he found like 50 of them that could do it. And the coolest thing about this 50, and yeah, it included NGN2 and ASCL1 like you would expect, but something like three quarters of the genes that were sufficient to turn an iPS cell to a neuron when upregulated by CRISPR activation are not differentially expressed between stem cells and neurons. Wow. So if you were to just look for upregulated genes in a candidate-based approach, you would never have found the majority of the genes. And so I think this is the kind of thing, this better ability to make gene-less, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really inform a lot of bioinformatics, it's going to inform a lot of processes, and I think we're going to learn a lot from it really quickly. 
a whole universe of unknown unknowns <laughs> right at our fingertips. All right. Next is, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without... Mentoring. Uh, science is so much harder than I realized. And when... Uh, I mean, I had a really great PI in grad school, another really great PI as a postdoc. Um, but running your own lab is a completely different job than, than being a grad student or a, a postdoc. It's, it suddenly stops being about your ability to pipette and starts entirely being about your ability to write grants and mentor people. And so without having my own mentors helping me learn these softer skills, I, I really don't think I, I would have made the transition. Wow, what the hell is going on out there? I work at a hospital. <laughs> there are a lot of ambulances from time to time around it, here. It sounds <laughs> like World War III, but um, just, just another day in New York. Uh, okay. On to, well, I just want to address the mentoring thing. You did hit the lottery in terms of pedigree with uh, Rusty and Doug there and at great institutes. And, you know, the great thing about having great mentors, I've noted in my personal experience, although maybe it's not always true, is that you end up being a great mentor. And I'm sure you're paying it forward. Um, and part of the thing about being a great mentor is having great mentorship to know what it is. Because, you know, a lot of times I go and I try and find mentorship in my own institute and I don't even fault the the senior investigators here. A lot of them just really don't know how to do it. Uh, they don't have the bandwidth or they haven't had the experience or it's not emphasized in the training of a young investigator how to actually mentor not only your own mentees, but also some, you know, the ones who come behind you. So, yeah, it's a huge point of emphasis. I'm glad you put in that answer because mentorship in science needs more attention. I, right. can't, I can't agree more. I think... Science is hard at every stage of the career, and all of us need both a teacher and a cheerleader and a, a little bit of help at, at every stage. I, I don't. If, if there's a point where you stop needing it, I, I haven't achieved it yet. <laughs> <laughs> we never grow up, Kristen. Um, the next question is, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. My blank is R. I, I cannot code to save my life, and it's the most important skill in my laboratory. I'm really lucky that all of my grad students and postdocs have been super motivated to learn it, and if I could go back in time and learn something, I would learn to code. And for all of you who still have the opportunity in grad school or as a postdoc, pick up that skill. It's, it's going to serve you well. Well... In fairness, you know, that's just what happens, Kristen. You have your expertise, then you become redundant, then you become obsolete. And I think that's just a part of growing up. Uh, last, if the lab catches fire, and I can grab one thing on the way out, it is... It's going to be my liquid nitrogen tank with all of my stem cell lines. I have no idea how I'm going to get down the stairs, somewhere <laughs> on the ninth floor, um, but, but it's coming with me. Yeah, well, they, they, they put those on wheels for a good reason, I think. <laughs> um, great, great. Yeah, I, I mean, I can attest to that. As any, any scientist working with cells, that is the most precious research. What, what do you think the oldest cell line you have in there? How many years ago did, did it go into the tank? Um, it, it ran in grad school. Yeah. So I, I've got some things that have come from Boston to San Diego and, and back to the East Coast with oh, me. I don't God. know if they would still thaw. Actually, I thought a couple of them a couple of years ago. So, <laughs> Kristen, Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really fun chat, and uh, we look forward to hearing what you're going to do next with your genome-wide CRISPR screens, you crazy girl. 
<laughs> well, no, thank you. I, I really enjoyed chatting. All right, guys, that was a great chat with Dr. Brennan. Brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. I'm sorry about all those emergency vehicles in the background at the end of the interview, though. But, you know, people in the city are ramming around trying to save lives. Just like you guys out there in the hood, you ought to get back to it. Get those stem cells thawed and hopping. Make a difference. Do some good in the world. We'll be back in a couple weeks with our next guest. Be sure to blow your mind. Good evening.